For our Old Testament reading this morning, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 110, the 110th chapter rather than chapter 1, verse 10. Sorry about the typo. The 110th chapter of the Psalms, hear now God's word. Jehovah saith unto my Lord, Thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jehovah will send forth the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people offer themselves willingly in the day of thy power, in holy array, out of the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. Jehovah hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand will strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill the places with dead bodies. He will strike through the head in many countries. He will drink of the brook in the way. Therefore will he lift up the head. And our New Testament reading comes from the fourth chapter, the book of Ephesians, the first 16 verses. Again, hear God's word. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith you were called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But unto each one of us was grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now this, he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, under the work of ministering, under the building up of the body of Christ, till we all attain unto the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, <clears throat> unto a full-grown man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and craftiness after the wiles of error, but speaking truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom all the body fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supplies, according to the working and due measure of each several part, makes the increase of the body under the building up of itself in love. And thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the day in which a lot of talk is um, given to the subject of church growth. It's the day in which a lot of talk is given to the subject of the health of the body called the Church of Jesus Christ. Body life is of interest. It's on the uh, hearts and minds of many who are leaders in the Church of Jesus Christ. The future of the Church, its missions outreach, and the, the growth of the local congregation are of great concern to people in the Church. 
the health and the hope of the Christian church should be of concern to all of us. I wish to suggest to you this morning that the hope and the health of the Christian church have to do with recognizing the head of the Christian church, Jesus Christ. Hope, health, and head. Those are our subjects of interest this morning. And the reason I have chosen to speak to you about the head of the church is because, as you should be aware, this Lord's Day morning in our worship service, we are installing two elders uh, to serve on the session here in this congregation, and we're installing three deacons to fill out our diaconate board in this congregation as well. I think that the installation of elders and deacons would not be considered a very big deal in most churches, but it's a very big deal here. It's not a very big deal because I think most churches don't concern themselves much with the issue of church government. Elder Jones and I last summer went to Reno, and there we visited a church where the pastor let it be known from the pulpit that questions of church government are just too trivial to worry about, to have division over, to argue about. We need to stick to really important issues. I want to suggest to you today that if you don't see the issue of church government as of prevailing importance, and what we are doing as a congregation, that very likely you have lost sight of the headship of Jesus Christ over the church that is his own body. After all, who decides what is trivial? Who decides what is a big deal in the church? Who decides what is relevant to the hope for the future of the church and to the health of the congregation as it's presently constituted? I would submit to you that the church's priorities with respect to its hope and its health what is most relevant to the future of this body can be determined only by the Lord of the church himself. It cannot be determined by personal opinions, and it can't be determined by ecclesiastical traditions. It's the outlook of Jesus Christ that has to be supreme here. It is his perspective that determines our own values and the way we see things. And so this morning I'd like to look at two cardinal principles regarding the church of Jesus Christ, of which we are all a part. And if we understand those two cardinal principles about the church, then we'll be very interested in church government and some of the issues of administration that today are just kind of passed off as just archaic, anachronistic, old-fashioned, dead weight to get in the way of the real hope and health of the church. The first principle that I would propose for your consideration is that Christ is the divine head of his church, and the second principle that we'll look at is that Christ's word is the supreme binding and limiting law of his church. So first of all, that Christ is the divine head of the church. The Bible teaches us that the church is under the direction of a ruling head, and that head is not the moderator of your session. That head is not the presbytery of Southern California. That head is not the moderator of the presbytery or even the moderator of the general assembly. That head is not even the Pope in Rome, but that the head of the church, the only ruling sovereign in the church of Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ himself. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verses 23 and 24. Paul, in trying to explain the relationship of a wife to her husband and husband to his wife, likens this relationship to Christ in the church. And in verse 23, we read these words. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, being himself the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ in all things, 
so let the wives also be to their husbands. The head of the wife is the husband. Stop and think about that image for a minute, and hopefully we'll be disabused of a common notion that when the New Testament speaks of Jesus as the head, they mean this head here on a torso. That Jesus is the head, and the torso is the body. And so you have Jesus the head, church the body. But of course, Paul here likens head and body to husband and wife. Hardly appropriate. The husband is not the head of the wife as a trunk, his body. Isn't that right? In what way is the husband head of his wife? Well, Paul explains right there in Ephesians 5 when he says that Jesus is the Savior of the body. He has a tender compassion and concern to defend it, to protect it, to guide it, to nourish it as his own. And so that is the way in which Jesus is head of the church. He is the head, and in Ephesians 5, Paul makes it clear that as the church is subject to Christ in everything, so wives must be to their husbands. Now, we could preach this morning about wifely submission. That's an appropriate topic. But you see, wifely submission is subordinate to the, to the key principle that the church is submissive to Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to proclaim this as the word of God, thus saith the Lord from the pulpit, but let me just propose something for your sacred meditation this afternoon, whether there is not in some way a connection in our culture between the fact that wives do not, as a general principle, wish to be submissive to their husbands, that's really an old-fashioned principle, and churches do not generally so submission to the head, Jesus Christ, that the defection in the home and the defection in the church really do have something to do with each other. Well, you reflect on that. The point in Ephesians 5, though, is that the church, in a paramount way, setting an example for wives, the church should submit to Jesus Christ in everything. In everything. That means the way the church is governed. It means the concept of membership. That means the way the church is administered. What goals it sets for itself. The manner of pursuing those goals. The attitude with which we pursue those goals, everything pertaining to the life and the behavior of the church is to be submissive to Jesus Christ because he is the head of the church. In all of its affairs, the church must be under the authority and must be under the guidance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that shows how much he loves us. In the same way that a wife takes care of every detail, excuse me, a husband takes care of his wife's every detail and problem in life, doesn't leave her in the dark. In fact, it's a way in which a husband shows his love for his wife when he tells her that I like my eggs done a particular way, isn't it? He doesn't leave her to guess about that and maybe be wrong and feel frustrated over it. He helps her. When the children are acting up, the husband must be there as the one who is the covenant head of that home to back up his wife. He doesn't run off to work and say, well, you discipline the kids. Likewise, the fact that Jesus treats the church with that same kind of care and gives commands to the church and directions and a structure to the church is a sign of how much he loves it, how much he's the savior of the body, how much he is tender and compassionate toward it. Christ has not left us to the shifting and fallible opinions of men. Christ has not left us to the tyranny of popularity polls. As I look out on this congregation, I see people who have had the tyranny of the popularity poll in their past experience of church life. They know what it is to go to a church and have the principles never be certain, never be predictable, because the church is not really being run by Jesus Christ through his word. The church is being run by the wisdom of men. What seems best to us? 
What seems like it would be popular when we preach to people? What programs might get people smiling and better entertained? These questions are not altogether relevant when you remember who the head of the church is. In all things, our concern is to serve Jesus Christ. He is our sovereign. He is our head. And so the church is not to be managed in the wisdom of men, but according to the sovereign wisdom of the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. The church is to be run by the shepherd and not by the flock. And so we might say very literally that the church is a theocracy. The church is an institution that is ruled by God himself, ruled by the Messiah himself. The Gospel of Matthew especially asserts that emphasis, that the church of Jesus Christ is his, that he is the theocratic head of the body. We see this, for instance, in Matthew 18, verse 20, where Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We sometimes forget that in Matthew 18, that passage is talking about the exercise of church discipline, when someone needs to have charges brought against them, when the church must gather together to pronounce judgment. Jesus says, there I'm in the midst of you. When you gather in my name, and look at the context, it's a church discipline setting, Jesus says, I'm there. Because when the session acts, it acts as the session of elders in the presence of Jesus Christ. It does not act on its own. It does not act as mere human beings. It acts in the name of Christ. He says that, gathered in my name to do my bidding because I am present. I am enthroned there. This is my church. What had Jesus said in two chapters previous to this? Matthew 16, verse 18. When he talks about Peter being the rock, Jesus says, and I will build, not the church, not I will build a church, but I will build my church. This will be my body. This will be my bride. This will be my kingdom and my temple that is being built up. It belongs to me and I am present in it. And at the end of Matthew's Gospel, you notice how the great commission given to the church stresses how Jesus is the sovereign over all. He says, all authority has been granted to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. None is left over. Jesus doesn't have any scraps of authority that he then shares with people. He says, it's all mine. In heaven and on earth. And on that basis, he says, go make disciples of all nations. Disciples follow their leader. Disciples submit to their teacher. Disciples are those who are subordinate to another. He says, make the nations my disciples, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Clearly, Jesus is talking about the life of the church here. He says, spread my church in which I have all authority to all the nations round about that they might be my disciples, that they might be baptized in my name and in the triune name of God, and teach them to observe what? What seems good for their day and age? Teach them to observe whatever seems to be palatable to the minds and the hearts of men and the cultures to which they go? Teach them to do those things which are entertaining and fun for them? No! Teach them to observe whatever I have commanded you. And Jesus reminds us, because it is his church, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am present. You are in session with me. You submit to me as my disciples because all authority is mine. I think it very well be said that if Jesus is not, in fact, the divine Son of God that he claimed to be, that he was indeed a megalomaniac. 
If Jesus was not who he claimed to be, these sorts of claims just don't sit well, even with the best and most charismatic of leaders among men. Jesus said, it is my church. You submit to my instruction. You make people my disciples. You observe whatsoever I have commanded you because I am with you always. And praise God, because it's true. This is not the church of the Presbyterians. This is not even the Orthodox Presbyterian church when all is said and done. This is not a church of men. It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ who is pleased and gracious enough to call us men into his service. And don't ever forget that. It is the service of the king that we have here in this congregation. This congregation does not exist for its own. It does not exist even for the benefit of its members, although there's plenty of benefit there. It exists for the sake of the glory of the head of the church. And if we ever forget that, then we are a bride who has divorced her husband. We have put away submission to Jesus Christ. We have forgotten what we're all about as a church. No person... No persons in concert, no polity, and no constitution may ever assume the supreme place which belongs to Jesus Christ alone as the head of the church. And so we read these well-known words in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, section 6. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. You see, all human powers and all human prerogatives must be subservient to Jesus Christ in the church. And that bond which unites everyone who is a member of the church together, whether we are members or leaders, the bond that we have in common is loyalty to the divine head of the church, our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's absolutely no independent control over the church. There's absolutely no independent control within the church. There is no autonomy that applies to the body of Christ because it is his body. He is the husband of the bride. He is the head over all. And so when the Pope of Rome claims to be the head of the church, and even when the Pope of Rome is humble enough to say the head of the church on earth, we must say no. That's blasphemous. There is only one head of the church in heaven and on earth, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the king of England claims to be the head of the church, as he did in the days preceding the Westminster Assembly, we must say, no, that is blasphemous. There is no head over this church but the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's just that issue of whether the temporal magistrate, whether the king or parliament or even the president of the United States, whether any of these have the right to direct the affairs of the church, it's that issue that led to the Westminster Assembly and to the writing of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Let's never forget that the divine right of church government is at the heart of what it means to be a Presbyterian. Christ alone is head of the church, and therefore the state may not rule in the church. Christ alone is head of the church, so the Pope may not interfere in the affairs of the church. Jesus rules his church in his way and by his wisdom. And for us to give that up in order to get along with the powers of this world is for us to be disloyal to our head. It is for us to rebel against the king. There is but one right of church government, the right Jesus Christ lays down, and it must be followed or we can forget calling ourselves his body. Now, what do we mean by calling 
Christ the head of the church. I would like to suggest there are four different senses in which the Bible presents him as the head of the church. First, Christ is the covenant head of his people. In Ephesians 2, verses 16 and 18, you notice these interesting words about bringing the Jew and Gentile together in one body. We jump into the middle of Paul's discussion. I apologize for that. But notice this in verses 16 and 18. And might reconcile them both in one body unto God through the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. That is the enmity between Jew and Gentile, I believe. Then verse 18. For through him we both have our access in one spirit unto the Father. The only right any of us, Jew or Gentile alike, have to stand before God is through Christ, our head. And how is it that Christ has opened a way for us to enter into the presence of God? Well, if you've been in our Hebrews Bible studies, you know something of the answer already. It is because Jesus, who comes as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, went and presented a perfect, once-for-all sacrifice, a sacrifice of himself that tore apart the curtain so that we might enter into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. It is through him, our covenant head, our representative, our substitute, that we come before God. And it's through him that there is this one body, Jew and Gentile alike, making up the church. Let's never forget that. The only right we have to be the people of God, the only status we have, is found through him, our covenant head and representative. Secondly, the Bible teaches us that Christ is the ruler over all things. He is the head over all. That may surprise you. The doctrine of Christ being head of the church comes second in line in terms of biblical thinking. Christ is first head over all the creation. Christ is head over all as the divine Messiah, sent here to be Lord of lords and King of kings. And just because he's head over all things and does it for the sake of the church, we come then to see that he's head of the church as well. Notice that is the logic of Paul in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. Ephesians 1, verse 22, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over all things. It's interesting. Paul doesn't begin by saying, Jesus is head of the church, and we hope someday he'll be head over all things. He says, Jesus has been given to be head over everything. He already is. We don't need to bring in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We don't need to push to make him sovereign over all areas of life and over all mankind. He already is. And God granted that to him. And it can't be taken away from him. Remember again Psalm 110. Jehovah said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I'll make your enemies my footstool. He has been enthroned on high and he now is head over all the world, over all creation. And when men refuse to acknowledge that, they are rebelling against their rightful king and they will come under his wrath and curse for it. But their submission to him is not the submission that makes him king. Their submission is a recognition that he is the king. But now notice what Paul says. He has been made head over all things for the church, for the sake of his precious body and bride. He is the Lord over all creation to the benefit of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. And so let's remember that Jesus is head of the church because he is the one who provides for it. As the sovereign Lord over all creation, the resurrected Messiah ascended to the right hand of God, he rules everything, all the affairs of men, 
all the economic policies of men, all the nations of this world, all the industrial, educational, athletic, artistic interests of this world are ruled by Jesus Christ for our sake. And that makes him our head because he does everything for our benefit. Thirdly, Jesus is head of the church according to the Bible because he is the nourishing provider and defender of his bride. In Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, which we read in our scripture reading this morning, Paul tells us that the church speaking the truth in love is to grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom all the body fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supplieth, according to the working and due measure of each several part, makes the increase of the body into the building up of itself in love. You know why the church grows? You know why the church is healthy? You know why it has a hope for the future? Because Jesus is its head. He is the one who's providing for every joint, every marrow, every synapse, every connection in the body. He rules over it. He supplies it. That again tells us that this is not a biological figure of a head and a torso here. The head does not do that to the torso. The torso does not grow up into the head. Paul here is not thinking of a biological body metaphor. He's rather thinking of that which is the nourishing provider and governor and defender, the head, even as I said earlier, the husband is head of his wife. But then finally, Christ is the highest governor and the unchallengeable king of the church as well. That's what we mean by calling him the head. And we'll see that in Colossians 1, verse 18, where Paul says, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Isn't that amazing? Can you put this together? Jesus is head over all things for whose sake? For our sake. He rules all of creation for the benefit of his church. And in his church, he is the head. He is the supreme governing authority. Why? So that in all things he might receive the preeminence. So that not only among us, but among all men and throughout the creation, Christ might be declared Lord of all. And so Jesus rules over all for our benefit. We recognize him as our head so that he might have the preeminence in everything. Well, that's our first principle. Christ is the head of the church. The second principle follows very obviously from it. That Christ's word, therefore, must be the supreme, the binding, and limiting law of his church. How does Christ communicate his will to the church? After all, he says that he is with us always to the end of the age. Where two or three are gathered together in his name, he is present with them. But we don't see Jesus. We don't talk to Jesus, at least not in the same way that I'm talking to you and you might talk to me. How does Jesus rule this church over which he is the head? The answer is he communicates his will to the church through the scriptures, which are his word and will. The word of God in the Bible is therefore the highest law of the church. And if we should ever subordinate the scriptures in deference to any other opinion of men, we would be in rebellion against the word of the king himself. Jesus is head of his church and he rules it through the scriptures. That's the common law of the Christian church. Wherever and whenever the Christian church comes to expression, we have a common law. You have something in common with Christians who speak a different language many years ago and Christians that will be in another place many years from now. You will have this in common, that there is but one constitution for this dominion, one constitution in law word for the church of Jesus Christ, and it is the scriptures which Jesus himself 
has delivered to us. And when we have churches in our day and age, have church covenants. And so no requirement that comes from Jesus, our Savior. No word that is found in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments may be innocently omitted when it comes to the ruling of the church. If this is the word of Jesus and he is our king, this word must be our law. And not with the scissors and paste approach that we cut things out that we don't like or find awkward or uncomfortable for our day and age. He rules us by his word, pure and simple. Not only that, no human legislation may be added to this word. We cannot add anything to the word of the king because we are not the king. We are but the servants of the king. And so the church may not curtail Christ's rule in his church. It may not extend its own control beyond the authorization given by Christ. And when we have churches in our day and age, have church covenants that require things like that you will not drink or you will not smoke, those churches are forgetting that they are the servants of the Most High, that Jesus is head of the church and his law is supreme. We dare not add to it. When churches say that they can govern their affairs in any way that seems best to them and they don't have to pay attention to rules for elders and deacons, they are offending against the kingly rule of Jesus Christ through his word. We may not violate and we may not add to his constitution because it is his body. It is his kingdom. We are his bride. And thus the sole and supreme rule for the church must always be Christ's word in the scriptures. It's to them that we yield implicit obedience. By that I mean whatever they teach and whatever reform they call for, we say in advance, Lord, if it's your will, we'll do it. Now show us what your will is. Help us to understand it better. Help us constantly to be reforming ourselves by this divine standard. Romanism is not the only group guilty of violating these two cardinal principles that I've laid down this morning. That Jesus is the divine head of the church and he rules through his word. Romanism is not the only group, although it is historically the most blatant of them all. Because Romanism has another head of the church declared to be the pope and his bishops. And Romanism dares not only to violate the teachings of God's word for the rule of Christ's body of the church, but it dares to add numerous precepts that do not belong there at all. But my friends, if you'll look about you, for all of the opposition to Roman Catholicism you'll see in many Protestant groups, aren't many Protestant groups equally guilty of not recognizing the headship of Jesus Christ, not being governed by his constitution, guilty of adding things to his word or refusing to be governed by the dictates of that word? Of course, it's true, and we wouldn't have to look far, would we? We could just go in Orange County and do a survey and ask how many people are submitting to the governance of Jesus Christ in the church. I'm going to ask you as we close this morning about a few questions that every church must answer. How should the church be organized if it is, of course, the body of Christ? How should it be administered? How should it be governed? We see three questions here. First, the question of church membership. There are many groups in Orange County, many groups throughout the world, as a matter of fact, who have no concept of church membership. You come and you go, you're entertained or you're not entertained, you sit there without a sense of commitment or covenant or vow. There's no body life, no possibility of discipline, and the church becomes entertainment-oriented, of necessity. On the other hand, there are churches that are what we call sacerdotal in their approach to membership, the Roman Catholic Church being the supreme example, where membership becomes necessary to salvation, which is dreadful enough that if you're not a member of the Roman Catholic Church, you can't be saved. But on top of that, membership is controlled by the church on earth, 
not a matter of reflecting of what is written in heaven, but the church will determine what will be written in heaven. And a strange, paradoxical reversal of roles where church becomes Lord and God becomes servant of the church. So the question of membership, you see, is abused and violated on both sides. No membership or sacerdotal membership. Another possibility is that the church should have a role that aims to reflect the Lamb's book of life. And that role then determines who will be admitted to the Lord's Supper, not who will go to heaven ultimately, although we do our best to see a correspondence between the two roles. We talked about that last Lord's Day, didn't we? There's a second question that has to be asked in the church in our day, and that's the question of government. There are those who say the government of the church is independent. In such independent churches, congregations elect who will be their rulers, and usually it comes down to one man ruling. Even in Baptistic churches, it is the charismatic pastor or someone else on the board who generally rules the church, and the churches are unconnected. The abuses of one congregation cannot be corrected by another or by a regional church that oversees those churches. And so here you have the independent option. There's also what we call the Episcopalian option that is followed not just in the Episcopalian but also in the Roman Catholic Church and others like them, where we have rulers that might be considered monarchical, like kings. One man is able to rule over a body of people, not in tandem with other elders, but himself as a bishop, or in some cases as a pope. And the congregation is left out of that. The congregation does not choose the shepherds that they will submit to. They have them imposed on them by the bishops, a kind of top-down government in the church. And then thirdly, we have the Presbyterian option, which says that there must always be a plurality of elders that rule in the church, that they must be elected by the congregation and approved by the local leadership, so that you have a combination of the people saying, well, choosing those to whom they'll submit, as well as the governing board ruling on the qualifications of those individuals. A plurality of elders ruling, not one man in the church, not one man in the regional church or presbytery. And these churches are interconnected. The offenses of one church, the problems in one church, will be looked after by the other churches. And so there is a system of appeals boards, from the congregation to the presbytery to the senate to the general assembly, if you have that many steps in your particular denomination. Thirdly, we have the question of church administration. How should the day-to-day -day affairs of the church be governed? I've already indicated in some churches you have a one-man tyranny, really. In some cases it's a bureaucratic tyranny. The church is run by just a whole series of uh, bureaucratic interconnections that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ governing through the body and the local elders. In other churches we have a democratic vote which in principle is needed on every detail. Shall we um, change the church stationary? Well, if the congregation is the ruling authority, then you go to the congregation and you vote on that and on everything. And then in other churches, we have a session of elders who are assisted by a diaconal board that govern the church. <clears throat> many questions, many options. What does the Bible say? You see, we shouldn't look at those and say, now, <clears throat> what do we think is the wisest? What do we think is going to have the best consequences? Which one sounds like it would work most conveniently for us? If we understand the two principles I've taught this morning, that Jesus is head of the church and he rules by his word, our only option is to say, Jesus, what would you have us do? What should we think about church membership? How should we be governed? And what should be the day-to-day -day administration 
of our congregation. Some biblical answers that I'll give you as we close. First, the concept of church membership is rather obvious from the New Testament. In Acts, the second chapter, we read repeatedly, people were added to. Well, you can't add people to some group unless that group is clearly defined. And that's what we call the Christian church. In Acts 5, we read that no man dared join himself to the body, to the church of believers. <coughs> clearly, there was a distinction between those who are God's people, those who are in the world. And in Galatians 6, Paul speaks of the household of faith. We must do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith. The Bible does give us a concept of church membership then, not just whoever happens to wander in, but those who are considered part of the household. Moreover, the Bible answers the question about governing in the church when it shows that the continuing officers in the church are elders. In Acts the 20th chapter, Paul calls himself the elders of the flock and addresses them. In Philippians 1.1, Paul gives greetings to the church at Philippi with the elders and deacons. Clearly, Paul recognized that is the governing authority in the church. We have elders who are assisted by deacons. Moreover, we see how these people are chosen. In Acts the sixth chapter, the officers are chosen by the people then ordained by the local elders. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, Paul refers to Timothy's ordination by the presbytery. Jesus has a rule for the church. He has a government for his church. He has a structure for carrying out things in his church. And it's not one-man rule, and it's not popish rule, and it's not congregational democracy. It is the rule by elders assisted by deacons. And each congregation has a plurality of those elders, not just one. And Acts 20, verse 17, and Philippians 1, 1, and other passages show us it's always the elders, plural, that are referred to. In Titus 1, verses 5 and 7, the very same person is called an elder who is called a bishop or overseer. We don't believe that there are bishops above the elders, but all elders are bishops, are overseers or managers. And finally, in Acts the 15th chapter, we see that there are appellate boards within the church. Local congregations that have difficulties, say a problem of doctrine that arises, may appeal to the appellate board there in Jerusalem. The elders got together and determined this issue of doctrine having to do with the Judaizers. And their decision was not just, well, this is the opinion of the majority. It was authoritative. In Acts 15.28, it is described as a burden that is laid upon the congregations. They must accept that burden. In Acts 16.4, it is a decree that is laid upon them. So that when the presbytery, or better, when the general assembly speaks, all the churches must submit. And so what we get here, very briefly, is a picture of what we call the Presbyterian model of government. Church membership must be recognized. The officers are elders who are assisted by deacons. The elders must be a plurality, a board that is chosen by the people but ordained by the other overseers. Each congregation has such a plurality. They are not bishops in some special sense, but just elders or overseers, every one of them. And when things go wrong in the local church, there is an appellate board called the Presbytery or General Assembly to which a person can go to have redress. That's why we're installing elders and deacons today. We're installing them because we want to, as best we can discern, and as faithfully as we might, submit to the rule of Jesus Christ, the head of the church. The installation of elders and deacons is a reassurance that there's health in this body, that Jesus is the head and he is nourishing every part 
because we are accepting the gifts and graces and guidance that he has delivered to us. The installation of elders and deacons provides solid hope that we have a future in this church because see, all the devices and schemes and popularity plans of men are going to eventually fall by the wayside. And the only thing that's going to survive the ages is the church of Jesus Christ, obedient to its head and king. And above all, the installation of elders and deacons is a testimony itself to our recognition, feeble though it may be, limited though it is, sinful as it is tainted, it is our recognition that Christ is our head in this congregation, and he rules us by his word. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we do pray that you would receive us as your people, that you would be willing to be our covenant head, that your saving mercy would be extended to us, and Lord, we do pray that you would drive from our thoughts and conceptions today any notion that we are enthroning you as king, but rather we submit to you and, and bow the heart, even as we bow the knee, that you are the king, that God himself has granted that to you, and that you are king not only in this place, but you are king over all creation for the benefit of your people, the church. We do recognize you as our husband, as our head, as our king. Do help us as we continue in our life as your people to always be subservient to your will in the scriptures. Make that word ever more precious to us. May we examine it daily to make sure that what we are doing is what you would have us to do. Help us in our acknowledgement that you are our head. Help us in our obedience to your constitutional law in the scriptures. We ask that this would be done, that there would be true health in this body and true hope for the future because you are our head. And we pray in your blessed name, amen.